Bibles again to Psalm 42. Psalm 42. Pastor has asked me to continue our summer series in the Psalms, so that's what I'll be doing today. Psalm chapter 42. What do we do when we can't seem to get anywhere with God? When our world around us seems to be falling apart and inside we are self-destructing and seem to be spiraling. What do we do when we feel hopeless, when we're in dread and despair all day long? When our soul is downcast and depressed? As a believer in God, there are certain expectations, certain outcomes that we think we're supposed to have, certain ways we're supposed to respond. Does that mean we just sit up straight and we smile and say, God bless you, everything is good? Or is there something else? This psalm today expresses the words when we feel like we are in times of desperation. This psalm today is going to teach us how we climb out of despair and walk with God with hope and joy. Just a reminder you, this psalm is a lament. Lament is a prayer and pain that leads to trust. And as we look in this psalm, it has a subscript at the beginning, and it's important, the heading that's there. It says, to the choir master, a mascal of the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah were a group of priests who were charged with the ministry of singing. Second Chronicles 20.19 describes them in action. The Korites stood up to praise the Lord the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. So the heading implies that this psalm was probably used in public worship and was sung. The psalms are songs. They are poetry. They were written to awaken, to express, and to structure the emotional life of God's people. Poetry and singing exist because God made us with emotions, not just thoughts. Our emotions are massively important, and God wants us to know how to properly express our emotions back to him, and so we have the book of Psalms here today. It would be like a soundtrack for us of how to sing to God. The second thing I want you to notice in the heading is that the psalm is called a mascal. Scholars debate on what it means, but what we can gather is that the word comes from a Hebrew verb that means to make someone wise or to instruct. So when applied to this psalm, it may mean a song that instructs or a song that is wisely crafted. The psalm is intended to teach, to give instruction today on how to face hopelessness in life. So let me lay out the framework for you from this text then I want to show you three ways to fight depression and despair. And we're going to be looking at Psalm 42 and 43 today. Even though they're separate in the English version, um, I believe originally in the Hebrew they were together. And one of the reasons you can tell that is based on the structure. Uh, Psalm 42, 1 and 4, Psalm 42, 6 through 10, and Psalm 43, 1 through 4, they all show the psalmist lamenting. The psalmist crying out to God in pain. You could call that verse 1, verse 2, and verse 3 of this song. And then the chorus, it follows in uh, verse 5, verse 11, in chapter 43, verse 5, 
and it says this, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise you, my salvation and my God. So how do we climb up despair and walk with God in hope and joy? We must fight for hope. He is exhorting himself not to surrender to his emotions of despair. And I will be exhorting you today and myself that when we are in these deep times, these deep battles of depression, these deep battles of despair, we must fight for joy. So the first point is this. We need to express our emotions back to God. That is how we fight for joy. I need this point to sink in for you. The psalmist puts to words what some of your hearts are expressing at this very moment. You're not just having a bad day, and you didn't just get a lack of sleep. You're experiencing inner turmoil. The storm clouds have set over your house, and the crashing thunder and the blowing winds will not let up. You are engulfed by heartache maybe today, crushed with depression, loaded with anxiety. You are overwhelmed by life, and this psalm has the words for you. Can you imagine this? God, in his kindness, gave words for us to say back to him. Notice how he describes his emotions to God. In verse 1, he's panting like a deer. In verse 3, his only meal is his tears. In verse 5, 11 and 5 of chapter 43, his soul is cast down and in turmoil. In verse 7 of chapter 42, the breakers and the waves are crushing him. Verse 9, he's oppressed by his enemy. Verse 3 and 10, the enemy is taunting him, mocking him, ridiculing him, saying that there isn't God. In chapter 43, verse 2, he feels rejected by God. His internal circumstance is full of calamity. His soul is cast down. His heart is in turmoil. Everything in his life is under this massive strain and pressure, and he can't handle the pain. Some of you today are like the psalmist. The task of getting out of bed is a chore. You're in a constant fog of difficulties, of pain in your life. Maybe you're dealing with a medical diagnosis. Maybe it's a wayward child that you've been praying for years for them to turn back to God and you still see no fruit. Maybe you've been betrayed by a friend or a spouse or inflation has wrecked your finances. Whatever it is, darkness is consuming your soul this morning and you're beginning to wonder where God is. What do you do when the soundtrack of your heart is singing the blues? Church family, You need to take your complaints to God, the one who can actually do something about it. I want you to notice in our text today the name used for God. It is G, capital G-O-D. The first Psalter in uh, Psalm 1 through Psalm 41 most frequently uses capital L-O-R-D. That's the covenant name for God, Yahweh. In this section of the Psalters, uh, chapter 42 through chapter 72, Elohim is used frequently. And I don't want you to miss this point because it sets the tone for our sermon. 
Elohim means the supreme one, the one, the mighty one. When you are in despair, you want someone who has supreme power, all wisdom, all ability to help you. You don't want limited power. And we need to recognize that we live in a world with limited power. It was great that the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, but it didn't end abortion in America. The fight is still up to the states. The Supreme Court has limited power. This past week, the president canceled debt for some student loans, but he didn't cancel all the debt for everyone. He has limited power. When you go to the doctor and he's been practicing medicine for 35 years and went to a great school, but tells you there's nothing more that they can do for you, that's another example of limited power. And after you run into limited power over and over and over again, you get tired of the dead ends and you need to run to someone who has unlimited power. You need to come to the one-stop shop. You need to run to the one who has full control over everything in your life. You've come to the right place today because we worship an awesome God. We worship El Shaddai, the Lord God Almighty. We worship El Elyon, the Most High God who reigns over everything. We worship Yahweh, the covenant-keeping, promise-keeping Lord. We worship Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals. We worship Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who provides. That's who we come to today, the unlimited power. As you fight despair, you must not come to someone who is limited by time, limited by distance, limited by ability. You need to come to the one who has the whole world in his hand. God has limitless power. And in verse 1 of chapter 42, the psalmist pours out his heart. As a deer pants for flowing streams, So pants my soul for you, O God. The picture we typically get is of a deer that's headed by the stream. There's plush green grass. The streams are flowing. The sunlight is just right on the deer. It's this picturesque moment and tranquility. But when the psalmist says that the deer is panting, it's (gasps) he's out of breath. He's out of breath. He's parched. He can't go any longer. And studying for this text, I got to understand a little bit more about deers. My first experience with a dead deer was when I went to go meet Amanda, and her dad had just killed a deer, and the butchered deer was in the garage hanging down, and it was just like, whoa, like, I was not expecting this. Um, But in studying for this, here's what I come to learn about deer. Deer are under constant threat, okay? Their eyesight, their degree, they, they have peripheral vision. They can see wider than we are. One thing that I learned about deer, though, is they do not sweat at all. You see, what happens is what deer do is they have to <gasps> pant. <gasps> and so they're panting and their breathing gets faster, and that is how they dispel heat. This is why they're nocturnal, because they can't stand the heat, because their coat is made for the winter, and they do not shed it. So when the psalmist say he's panting for flowing streams, he's talking about this deer being under stress, 
and needing relief from cool water. The source by the stream is strategic because one of the things I also learned is the deer give off their main scent when they are breathing. And if they're running from a a predator and they're breathing, their scent is going. But when they get by the still water, the streams that are there, their scent goes away and they're refreshed. What we see here is that the deer pants and is searching for refuge and he must look for the streams of water and you and I are looking for refuge and we can find this in God. You see, under his wings, he will keep you. Under his wings, he will hold you. Under his wings, he will protect you. And what we see in our world today, our people are panting. People, you see in the news, you see it in your workplaces, you see it in their families. They're panting. They're thirsting. They're desiring water, but they've been drinking salt water. And it leaves them thirsty even more. Pastor Steve Hope writes in his book, Sipping Salt Water, in our nagging state of thirst, we consume things that look and feel and sound like they can quench our thirst. They promise unmatched pleasure. They promote limitless comfort, joy, strength, peace, and excitement. They vow to remove our fears and tears, our worries and guilt and shame. They pledge to fill the voids in our hearts and soothe our aching souls. They promise paradise but they can't deliver. We drink them, but the thirst remains unquenched. In fact, we're left thirstier, and we experience devastating hangovers, negative spiritual, emotional, physical, relational consequences as a result. And it comes in a variety of forms. People are panting today They're <gasps> because they think that money will give them satisfaction. They think that sex and control or comfort will please them, that business and work or food, whatever it may be. This thirst, their hunger, their panting, it's only going to be filled in God. You see, verse 2, my soul thirsts for God. For what? For the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Throughout this psalm, he will pour out his heart. And how we fight for joy is to recognize, like the psalmist, that our greatest need is not to be taken care of physically, but our greatest need is for God himself. What he grasps and what we need to grasp is that we can't be satisfied without God in our lives. He wasn't only thirsting for relief, from his threatening circumstances. He wasn't thirsting mainly for escape from his enemy. He was thirsting for the living God. He was thirsting for the living hope. He was desiring to be in God's presence where there is true joy and satisfaction. So how do you handle, how do you deal with, how do you fight despair, depression, sadness in your life? You must express your emotions to God because God is the one with unlimited power. God is the one that hears you, and he's the only one that can satisfy your soul. What else should we do? We express our emotion to God, and then we must examine our foundations. We can't fight despair just by bringing our complaints to God. We must fight these negative thoughts about God that accompany our complaints. 
We need to talk it through to ourselves so the psalmist demonstrates this to us. The psalmist first addresses God with himself with complaints, but then he speaks to himself, verse 11, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. This is the course of the psalm. It's repeated three times. And what you see here is the psalmist is wrestling with his own self. Why? The most influential person in your life is you. You listen to you more than anyone else. You spend more time with you more than any person. We're always interpreting events, situations, circumstances around us and creating us a story that determines who we are and what it means for us. We have the greatest influence upon our own lives. And sometimes our voices have been darkened by the reality of sin. And that can be dangerous. And I mean dangerous to listen to. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a former medical doctor in London, wrote on despair and depression. He says this, How have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that you come to the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they are talking back to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday. Somebody is talking to you. Who is talking to you? He says, yourself is talking to you. Now, this man's treatment in the psalm was this. And listen to this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why are you cast down, O my soul? His soul had been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. You must not sit with our questions. We will be stuck in a pit. If we're only anxious about our anxieties, worrying about our worries, and panicking over our problems, we are nourishing the old mind and downcast spirit. Did you get that? No, no. If we are only anxious about our anxieties, Worrying over our worries and panicking over our problems, we are nourishing the old mind, the downcast spirit within us. You see, here's the thing we must do. We must overcome the lies of Satan about God and ourselves. We must replace the lies with God's truth. So what do we do? Let me give you some examples. The diagnosis that they've given is terminal. And they say there's no hope. Revelation 21.4, he will wipe every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither there shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor any more, for the former things have passed away. What if you say to yourself, I'm fearful of my future. I'm fearful of my kid's future. I feel all alone. What do you say to yourself? Psalm 46, 1 and 2, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. What if you say to yourself, I am overwhelmed by heartache, overwhelmed with conflict, 
overwhelmed with relationship struggles, overwhelmed with this life. Psalm 59, 16, but I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning, for you have been a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. Oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you, for you, oh God, are my fortress. The God who shows me steadfast love. Do you get that? God is your fortress. Nothing can wreck you. What do you say to yourself if you feel like God has abandoned you? He's forgotten about you. He doesn't love you. Oh, Romans 8.35, who shall separate you from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. Verse 38, for I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in creation will, a- will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Stop allowing yourself to talk to you and preach to yourself. Talk back to yourself. God is wanting you to do this today. Stop listening to your flesh, to your old self, and start preaching the gospel to yourself. Charles Spurgeon, the preacher who suffered through physical and emotional toil, writes of this psalm, As though he were two men, the psalmist talks to himself. His faith reasons with his fears. His hope argues with his sorrows. What does he say to himself? Hope in God. Wait for God. He goes on to say, this is no mindless meditation, a closing of the eyes or a passive twiddling of the thumbs. Rather, we are to envision an expectant, straining anticipation for God's deliverance. This is a spiritually aggressive confidence that God will act and show himself faithful based on past performances. And I want you to know today, I don't know what you're specifically going through. So I'm not trying to minimize the real pain, the real turmoil, and the real struggle that you're facing. But when you are in a pit, we tend to overestimate our problems in correlation to God's grace. We underestimate the abundance of hope available to us in Christ. In the midst of despair, we fall into this pattern of thinking where every disappointment, every setback, every obstacle serves only to reinforce that God isn't there for us. And this is not true. The furthest thing from the truth. We must cling to the truth already revealed to us. We need to remind ourselves of our great salvation. Jesus went to Calvary to save a wretch like you and me. They hung him high. They stretched him wide. He hung his head for you. He died. You see, Jesus came to a sin-cursed world among sinful people, proves his love for you and me. Get this point. If Christ did not abandon you in his darkest hour on the cross, he will not abandon you now. Do you get that? This is important. If Christ did not abandon you in his darkest hour on the cross, he will not abandon you today. 
You see, Christ's incarnation, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension, and one day his return proves the opposite about his love. To those who are in deep darkness of suffering, to those who are crippled in despair, the psalmist understands what you are going through. He gets the difficulty that you are facing. And he's saying, stop listening to yourself and start reminding yourselves of the truth of God's word. You see, you're just trying to get by day one step at a time and you wonder, where is God in all this? And in fact, notice, The psalmist rightly understands that his pain, God has allowed, and the suffering takes place because of God. Uh, Verse 7, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. The waterfalls, the waves, the breakers, all these, he says, are God. He knows that God has a hand in this, but he doesn't end there. Verse 8, by day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and his night his song is within me, a prayer to the God of my life. In the midst of his suffering, he recognizes that God's steadfast love or his loyal love, his promise-keeping love that God will never depart from him. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Nothing's changing. When he makes that promise with you, nothing is going to snatch you out of his hand. So how do we climb out of despair and walk with God in hope and joy? We need to express our emotions back to God. We need to examine our foundations. And lastly, in the time that we have, we need to embrace the family of God. Let's go ahead and read chapter 42, verse 4. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I will go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with loud shouts and songs of praise and the multitude keeping festival. Chapter 43, verse 3 and 4. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my exceeding joy. And I will praise you, and with the lyre, O God, my God. You see, the cause of his sorrow is this unrelenting question, where is your God? Where is your God? And they are mocking him and saying that his God doesn't exist, that his God won't deliver him, that his God isn't there for him. And so what he has to do is he remembers, he reminds himself on his past experiencing of worshiping God. He remembers the singing. He remembers the praising of God, and it drowns out the scorn of the people and strengthens his face. The psalmist most likely was a worship leader, and one of the things he did was he led them up the mountain to sing praises to God in his tabernacle, to sing praises to the clean. So as he climbed out of despair and walked with God in hope and joy, he recognized that he needed to be with God's people. Embracing the family of God was the last step in what helped him to have hope and joy in life. Gerald uh, Wilson writes this, Another way to remember God's faithfulness, to long and avail ourselves whenever possible of opportunities to stand together with those who are worshiping. 
even if we feel distant or abandoned, the celebration will have an effect of a renewing certainty and hope. One of the roles of worshiping in the congregation is we worship when we cannot to celebrate the resurrection of Christ when I'm mourning a death of a loved one or struggling with my own sin. And the congregation is to declare the wonderful works of God even when I can no longer see him or sense his presence. You see, we need the family of God to get out of despair. We need the family of God, the singing, the fellowship, the community to get out of our depression. Let me be honest with you in these last moments I have with you, church family. Sometimes we are a bit too casual about attending worship services. I'm not talking to you if you are not a Christian. I don't expect you to want to worship God. You don't believe in. But Christian, I need to caution you against being casual with something that God deems holy and precious. Something that should be like the psalmist we value, that he thirsted for, that he longed for, that he craved for worship with God's people. If meeting together in person isn't valuable to you, you probably don't really understand what's going on here. God has always chosen to dwell among his people. This is seen clearly in the incarnation. Think of it. The Son of God took on a physical body. The one who was with God who put on human flesh to be with us. You see, what sometimes we think, okay, what if Jesus was here today? Maybe he would step into a studio in heaven, okay, and he would be broadcasted on all the major cable news channels, on YouTube and social media, and he would be live everywhere. Is that what we're thinking? No. He didn't come at a time like that. Think of it. He could have came at any time period, but he came in a time period where he would actually have to have the physical labor and toil of moving around, but he came and wanted to be with his people, okay? He wanted to rub shoulders with him. And this is why the word of God says to us to consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. What this means for you, Christian, is we are called by God to give encouragement and to receive encouragement, but that's flesh-on-flesh encouragement where we are with together. You don't know how much of a privilege it is just to be able to sit in the front row and hear the singing going there. And as it encourages and ministers to my soul, and it really does get me fired up as I, before I come and bring God's word to you because God's people are singing to God, the Holy One. So the problem we can't have is You can't think just once or twice a week, maybe I'll catch it online, that will be okay. You need to be in person with people. One pastor said it like this. This isn't a show that you attend. It's a collective worship session for people to encourage and be encouraged. Every song that you sing, every sermon that you hear, every prayer that you pray is ministering to someone. Do you long for this worship? Do you long for the fellowship and the community of family of God? What do you do in the midst of your despair, in the midst of your depression, in the midst of fighting with your emotions? 
first thing you need to do is you must express your emotions back to God, the one who can actually do something about it. The next thing you need to do is you need to examine your foundations. Stop listening to yourself and start preaching to yourself. And what do you preach? You preach the word of God back to yourself. And third, you need to embrace the family of God. What we have here is a gift. It is a gift. We were going in uh, Panama. We were there for a mission trip a couple of years back. And one of the things we did is we had to, it was a little hike for us, but it took about 30 to 40 minutes hike to get to the church site that we were at. We had to hike through the mountains. One of the things as we were hiking through the mountains is we had to cross through a river. Um, And that was pretty intense to think, to go to church, I have to cross through a river. Some of us, when it's raining, we don't come to church, but that's another point. Um, So we had to cross through a river to get there. And then we finally get to church and we're there. And Pastor Ray, we sing, it's all in Spanish. Pastor Ray preaches for an hour and we're exhausted from the hike, the early morning and everything. And all the group, myself included, we're like, okay, we're done. We're hungry. It's time to eat, ready to go. Oh no. Some people had hiked for two hours to get to this church service. And when they came, the sweet fellowship of being together, they wanted more. So Pastor Ray looks at us and says, they want another sermon. They're asking, is this it? Is this it? And we're like, so we're, I'm trying to like, and again, this is my heart. I'm just expressing myself. I'm trying to like, okay, you should, you know, this is good thing, good thing. But in the moment, I'm like, oh, I'm just so tired. I just want to go to bed. And then looking back at it and looking at the people, they loved the fellowship that they had, and it was worth it. It was worth it to them, being in the family of God, singing his praises, hearing his words, encouraging and ministering to one another. You see, where they placed their hope in in their times of despair was not in their health. They didn't place their hope in their spouse. They didn't place their hope in their jobs or children, their school. Their hope was in the Lord. And his community. You see, our hope should be in the Lord who gave himself for me and paid the price of Calvary. You see, Christ has died for us and Christ lives for us. So now, let's freely offer our worship back to him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you, Lord, so much for your word. For those that are in despair, for those that are downtrodden, beaten down by life, Lord, I pray that they can recognize that your word gives them the words to speak in their times of desperation. I pray that they would come to understand, Lord, that when they cry out to you, they know that you can actually do something, Lord. And as they cry out to you, I pray that your spirit would minister to them and teach them your truth, that you are God who is steadfast. You are a God that is loving, caring, a God that protects, a God that forgives, a God who is holy and set apart. And yet you sent your son to die for us. 
Lord, may this truth minister to our congregation today. In your name, amen.